It is necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Thanks, Alison. It's great to be here at church with you this morning. I love getting to be here and bring God's word to you. I'm going to pray as we start that God would work in us today. Please pray with me. Father God, make us willing disciples of you as we all sit under your word here today. Shape us, change us, encourage us by the gospel of your grace. Amen. In November last year, Elon Musk launched the new Tesla tank, I don't know if you heard about this, but it was promised to be the most strong, most powerful vehicle that Tesla had ever created. And it was marketed as impact-proof to the point that it could withstand even a bullet. And the launch of the Tesla tank it was broadcast live across the globe on social media and news channels. There was so much hype around this launch. Would it live up to the hype? Have a look for yourself. That was a little too hard. Yeah. <laughs> Should we try the <laughs> Sorry? Okay. It didn't go through. Let's so that's a, that's a plus side. Let's try the right. Try that one, really? Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> oh, man. It didn't go through. Oh, man. Uh, we love it. 
we love to tear down the tall poppy, don't we? We love having a laugh at someone who boasts, puts all their power and their strength uh, in themselves and then falls in a mess of their own making. And why, why is that? Why do we love tearing down the tall poppy in Australia? Well, maybe it's because we know deep down that boasting in anyone's individual strength, it's bound to fail because life really isn't that predictable, is it? We aren't completely in control. But at the same time as tearing down the tall poppy, us in Australia, we personally crave something that we can put our trust in. We laugh at others for putting their strength and their security in their own power. But at the same time, we hold tightly to our hopes and our dreams, hoping that maybe by our own valiant efforts, they might pull through for us. We all crave something stable to give us security. We dig our roots deep into something. For some of us, we might seek financial security, but really we're never quite sure if our superannuation will be enough for us. Or we pursue healthy, powerful bodies, but we know that just around the corner, a chronic illness could be there. Deep down, we all know that reading our lives in our own strength just won't work in the long term. We need a better source of strength than ourselves and our own abilities. Where have you dug your roots? And today, God is going to offer us a better source of strength than ourselves. He offers us better soil to dig our roots deep into. He sees our hunger for security, and he feels our exhaustion at working in our own strength. He knows each one of our longings for a life without pain, a life without weakness. And in this passage today, God holds out to you a source of strength that will never fail you even in your weakness. So in a slight homage to Matt Steele, we're going to use some alliteration today. (laughs) We're going to look at the search for strength and the source of strength. Come with me, we'll start off with the search for strength. We're spending our time in 2 Corinthians 12 today. Uh, It'd be really helpful actually if you keep that passage open in front of you in your Bibles. Uh, But coming into chapter 12 of a book here, it's a bit like starting a TV series at season 5. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's very easy to get lost. Um, so we're going to do some season one to four work to figure out where we're up to. This book, uh, 2 Corinthians, it's actually uh, likely the fourth letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth. Um, Corinth is one of the cultural hubs in the country of Greece. You can see it there. It's like set on a canal. And this church, it's had a consistent problem with power. You might remember in the book of 1 Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote to the church, um, the members, they've been bickering about where their allegiance lies, about who they belong to. Some of them say they belong to Apollos, others to Cephas, others to Paul, and still others to Christ. The members of the Corinthian church have a history of rooting their lives in the powerful leaders and miraculous displays of the Spirit. By the time we hit 2 Corinthians, this partiality for power, it's meant that new leaders actually have come up and taken charge of the church. But far from being good leaders, Paul, in some serious sass, labels them super apostles. I can have a look at chapter 11, verse 5, if you want to have a look. Um, And these super apostles, they're moving the church away from reliance on the power of the cross and towards reliance on their very own power. So Paul spends chapters 10 to 13 of our book, 2 Corinthians today, the last four chapters, he spends them pleading with the church to dig their roots deep into the gospel of grace. 
He pleads with them to find their strength not in human power, but in the cross of Jesus. So chapter 12, it's right in the middle of this appeal. But Paul actually spends most of the passage that we just read talking about something that might seem a bit left of centre. I wonder if you picked it up. I had the great misfortune, uh, or fortune, I guess, of studying law at uni. Um, there are many terrifying times in my degree, uh, but probably the most, one of the most terrifyingly regular times was when a lecturer would directly ask me a question. And just from the look in their eyes, you know, I knew it was one of those questions that, um, you know, those really intense questions that, you know, your reputation is on the line with the answer to that question. <laughs> uh, I had that a lot of the time uh, while I was studying law, and they were terrifying. And Paul here in this passage, he's facing a similar situation, actually. He's got a bunch of hecklers, and they're questioning whether he's spiritual enough to be their leader. Why are they doing that? Well, it's because these super apostles who've taken over the church, they've rooted their authority in their own spiritual power, in their own super spiritual visions and revelations. And so Paul answers their accusation in actually a really clever way. Come with me to verses 170 in your Bibles. We'll see what Paul has to say for himself. It is necessary to boast. Nothing's to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I'll be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one will think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations." Can you hear the sass in Paul's writing there? It's there. Have a look at verse 2. He starts with, I know a person in Christ. He makes it seem like this vision is someone else, yeah? But when you look at verses 6 and 7, he actually owns up multiple times to that vision being his own vision. It was his vision. So what's Paul doing? Why is he talking about himself in the third person here? Well, you know uh, how kids, when they really want um, the answer to a particular question, but they don't want to own up to that question. They'll say, oh, my friend, my friend had a question or my friend wants to do this. And as adults, maybe that gets translated to when we're at the doctor and we have an embarrassing medical condition that we don't want to own up to and say, my friend has this rash. Um, <laughs> us kids and adults, we're not trying to be intentionally deceitful in doing that, are we? We're just trying to detract attention from ourselves. And Paul, it seems like he's doing a similar thing here. He knows that he needs to answer the claims of his church that he's been outdone spiritually. But he doesn't want them to give their attention to that spiritual power. He wants them to give their attention where it really should be, to the giver of the visions. But there's another thing that Paul does here that adds to this, and it's in verse 3, and we probably, you probably balk it, the phrase there, because it's a bit odd to us. Paul says that during his vision, he was caught up to the third heaven. What on earth is Paul talking about with the third heaven? Is he advocating for different levels of heaven, where better Christians go to better levels of heaven? 
But when we hit curly parts of the Bible like this, it can be really helpful, actually, to figure out what Paul isn't saying, to figure out the impossible application. And we know that Paul cannot be advocating for different levels of heaven. He can't be promoting the idea that better Christians go to better, better levels of heaven because it would go against his whole teaching in the rest of, his, the, rest of the Bible, really. Because all founded, Paul's teaching is all founded in salvation by grace alone. At the heart of his ministry is the reality that we are all equal sinners. We are all absolutely reliant on the death of Jesus to make us right with God. There is no such thing as a better Christian. And God shows absolutely no favoritism within his children. So what is Paul saying here? Well, it seems likely that what Paul's doing is that he's tapping into a concept that was actually quite well known in both the Jewish and Gentile circles, the Gentile, just non-Jewish. In various writings of both those camps, the Jewish and the Gentile, there are references to a realm called the third heaven. It's often linked with paradise as well, like Paul does. And in this realm, the direct presence of the divine was there. And so by using this, when he's talking about this vision... It looks like Paul is trying to communicate, using language that his readers will understand, that he was brought into the direct presence of God in this vision. And that claim actually gives Paul some serious spiritual muscle. Because in those Jewish and Gentile writings, it was only the spiritual superheroes, ones like Moses, who were given access to the third heaven, direct access to God. And Paul here is in the most humble way he knows, putting himself in the camp of the spiritual superhero. If anyone could root their lives in their own spiritual strength, Paul is saying it it is him. But Paul refuses to do that. And it can be easy as Christians, I think, to slip into this thinking that Paul is fighting against. Because it's our default position as sinful humans to dig our roots deep into our own strength, into what we can offer ourselves, what we can offer others, and even what we can offer God. So where have you dug your roots? If you don't know, we'll have a think. How do you go when your plans fail? How do you go when you fail? Because how we deal with failure, it will show where our roots are. If our roots are dug into our own strength, Our failures, they will make us feel inadequate for God and inadequate for others and for ourselves. Maybe you're in that pit of inadequacy at the moment. But if we dig our roots into the gospel of grace, our failures should draw us to the cross. First in recognition of our failure, but then in absolute assurance of our forgiveness and our unmovable value as a loved child of God. So the next time you fall into that sin that you just can't seem to kick or you mess up at work or at home, check your reaction. Is it a reaction that's rooted in your own failure? Or when you fail, do you turn to God's grace? Recognizing your failure, yes, but in the same breath, reminding yourself of the unmovable value won for you on the cross by Jesus. Paul spends uh, the next part of this passage showing us this way of grace. Oh, there we go. The source of strength. Come with me to verses 7 to 10 in your Bibles. 
Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Paul starts off this section by setting out one of his own weaknesses, the thorn. And Paul actually doesn't seem particularly concerned with telling us what what the thorn in his flesh was, but he is concerned with telling us how it impacted him. The thorn, whatever it was, it tormented Paul. It stopped him fully enjoying life. It lowered his capacity. It was a heavy burden, a real weakness for him. But when we look at verse 7, we might get a little uneasy when we see that phrase, the messenger of Satan. Because what is God doing giving Paul a messenger of Satan? We know that God is absolutely good. We know that God is absolutely in control. And so in this situation, it seems that God is using the work of Satan, the existence of the thorn in the first place, to give Paul what he needed. Without the thorn, Paul was in danger of falling into the trap of the super apostles. The thorn, it popped Paul's ego bubble. Without it, God knew that he'd be prone to finding strength, like the super apostles, in super spiritual experiences. Uh, it's worth, I think, taking a quick pit stop in verses 7 to 8 and seeing what we can learn from them for us today. And it is worth saying that Paul is not saying that every weakness or sickness or temptation is God trying to humble us. But he does model for us a godly way to pray through our weaknesses. Have a look in verse 8. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. Paul doesn't just pray once, superficially to God about the thorn, because he knows he has to. He pleads with him. He pleads with him three times. Do you have a thorn, a weakness, a heavy burden that you're carrying in life at the moment? Do you wish that God would take it away? Well, God wants you to pray hard and pray honestly to him about that. And maybe in his grace, he will take it away. But while we pray like this, we also need to be reminded that God actually doesn't promise to protect us from weakness in this life. And when we look at Jesus, we see the perfect example of balancing those two realities. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus knew his own human weakness. He felt the temptation to turn away from the cross. And what did he do? Well, he prayed. And he prayed so hard and so honestly to the point where sweat was dripping from his body like blood. When we feel overwhelmed by our weaknesses, when we wish God would take sickness or temptation away, we can look to Jesus in the garden. He knows what it's like to be overwhelmed by weakness. And like him, we can pray honestly and we can pray hard to God. But ultimately, like Jesus was, we must be ready to submit to God's will as he unfolds it.
whatever it is. With Jesus, we can pray, remove this cup from me, Abba Father. Yet not what I will, but what you want. This is how we can dig our roots deep into God's strength when we're overwhelmed by weakness. But come with me to the heart of this passage, to verses 8 and 9. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. I don't know what uh, first pops into your head when you think about weakness. Uh, Maybe, like me, you think about your own wobbly legs or apparently my broken foot uh, after a long bushwalk. Uh, But the weaknesses that Paul has been talking about through this passage, they all have at their heart a lack of human strength. The word he uses there, it can mean physical weakness, so wobbly legs or sickness. Uh, But it can actually also mean a lack of soul strength. So not having the strength to live up to your potential or to resist temptation, or to persevere. And the promise that Jesus makes to Paul and to us today is that God's power is made perfect in our human weaknesses. And the hint for understanding how this works is right there in God's first phrase to Paul in verse 9. My grace. This is the secret ingredient that makes this weakness becoming strength formula work. The word that we have translated uh, in our versions as sufficient, akeo, it is, literally means to be possessed with unfailing strength. So in verse 9, God is promising you, my grace possesses you with unfailing strength. Isn't that beautiful? But how does God's grace do that? Well, when we think about it, when we dig our roots deep, into anything but God's grace, our confidence and our worth, they become utterly dependent on us, on our ability to achieve and to overcome weakness, to be enough. They are the things that define us. But when we dig our roots deep into grace, our strength is absolutely not dependent on us. The fact that you are loved and that you are objectively valuable is not at all impacted by your weaknesses, by your failures, or by your worries. Because at the cross, the Creator King, your loving Father, He became weakness for you. Jesus became weakness so that even in our weakness, we can be strong. Do you have your roots deep in this gospel of grace? How can you know? Well, How many of your life decisions are rooted in your need for other people's approval? Or how much of your self-talk is rooted in the unmovable value that this gospel of grace gives you? Is the way you deal with people who fail you rooted in your own self-preservation or in the gospel of grace? You see, the grace of God, it's not just for the beginning of our Christian lives. It is for the beginning, but it's also for the middle And it's for the end. Because it is at the point of our own weaknesses that we are drawn to the cross. Our weaknesses show our desperate need for a source of strength outside ourselves. And what do we find when we come to the cross? 
Well, when you fall in humble dependence on God, you'll find that in the end, it's really only his opinion that matters. And what is his opinion of you? Well, because of the gospel of grace, when you fall in dependence of him at the cross, you can have absolute certainty that despite your weaknesses, when he looks at you, he is in thunderous applause. And this, this is the gospel of grace that we need to preach to ourselves as Christians every day. Because every day we'll be fed the world's gospel on our Facebook feeds or in the ads that we see or in our very own self-talk. We'll be fed the message that we need to have our deep roots in our own strength. We need to do better. We need to be enough. We need to overcome our weaknesses. But when we preach the gospel of grace to ourselves, our weaknesses become the very things that make us strong because they show us that we cannot be enough in ourselves. God, by his grace, gives us his very own strength. He gives us his son and he gives us his spirit and he calls us to dig our roots deep into his strength and let his grace shape every part of our lives. So what will you dig your roots into this year? Like Elon Musk at the Tesla launch, we can dig our roots into our own strength. We can do our best to overcome our weaknesses and we can try our hardest to live a worthwhile life. Or we can let our weaknesses draw us in dependence to our loving God. And what do we find when we come to him? We find objective worth that is stronger than our failures. We find value that is as steadfast as the cross of Jesus. And we find love that is not dependent on our ability to please him. This is the gospel of grace that God calls us to dig our roots deeply into. This is the gospel that becomes our strength. And as the band comes up, I'm going to finish by reading verses 8 to 10 again. It's where Paul resolves to land Uh, coming out of this truth that God strengthens him. And maybe you can resolve to land here with him today too. Come with me in your Bibles, verses 8 to 10. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me, Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Let's stand and sing.